You know, a few houses ago, Lana and I lived well out in the country in this house, and we had some neighbors who went to our church, a couple with some young kids, and he was a firefighter. So he worked 24-hour shifts every three days, and so he was not at the house. And one night, about 9 o'clock, I got a phone call, and it was the wife, the mom in that house, and she said, Ryan, I think there's somebody in the house. You know, I, I, the, a door just opened, and you know, Craig's working and he can't get back. I called him. He's not going to be here in time. And I called the police and it's going to take them a while to get out. Can you come over? And I said, of course I can. So I put on some shoes and I grabbed a shotgun that I had. I drove their house, got there in like less than a minute. I'm standing at the door and I bang on the door and uh, there's no answer. And so I'm thinking, you know, she's probably somewhere in hiding in the house with the kids, scared to death. And so I bang a little harder and then it dawned on me, okay, if she doesn't come to the door, the sheriff's office is going to be here in a minute and I'm going to be standing here in my gym shorts and my shoes with my shotgun on the front porch. This is not cool. Okay. So just about then she, she, uh, she came to the door and I went in the good news is a side door had blown open with the wind. And so there was nobody in the house, but sure enough, a deputy, uh, showed up and, uh, they rightly kind of separated me from Dina and said, Hey, can I talk to her separately? Do you know this dude? Yes. And so it was all good. But the reality was I probably could have thought through that a little bit more because it was really hard to tell me whether I was a good guy or a bad guy. You know, sometimes it's hard to tell the good guys from the bad guys. And, and there's a, some parables in the passage today that really talk about that. Uh, you ever have a hard time figuring out who, who the bad guys are? Or, or you, you feel like, what am I supposed to do with those I would consider outsiders or the enemy or those on the opposite side? What am I supposed to do here? Well, Jesus has an answer in our parables today. Would you turn to Luke chapter 15 with me? We're actually going to look at a passage that has three parables that go together. The lost parables are often called. Parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, parable of the lost son, often known as the prodigal son. It's so important it deserves its own Sunday. Uh, we'll, and we may spend a couple of Sundays on it. We're going to look at these parables and we need to understand in context what's going on. Because at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's very well known. People are following after him. He's known for his miracles, for his healing, for his teaching. Some are following him because they want to follow Jesus. They, like, they want to give up their lives and be his disciples. Others are following because of the show. And some are following because they're just looking to criticize him. Most often what we see in the scriptures is those are the religious leaders of the day, most famous of whom are the Pharisees. Now, if you've read through the scriptures, you've been around church, you know the Pharisees are sort of like the villains of the story. But if you lived in the first century, you probably wouldn't think of the Pharisees as the villains. These are people who are just seeking diligently to keep the law. And they believe if they can hold fast to the law hard enough and, and more, most diligently, then that will uh, protect them and help them to, to usher in the overthrow of the Roman government. And, and you know what? In fairness to them, they've looked back at the history of Israel, and every time that Israel has forsaken God and the law, and they've ended up in, in rebellion and then being punished or exiled. So they're saying, well, this is what we have to do. The problem wasn't keeping the law. The problem was that the morality that they had had become their idol. And so along came Jesus, and he's teaching a message not of morality, but of repentance. Like, you have got to recognize your sin and forsake your own ability to solve your sin problem. And, and so they don't know what to do with him. And in this particular case, they're actually put out with him because of the company he keeps. So we begin the text in verses 1 and 2. Let's just start there, all right? All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to, to listen to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners 
and eats with them. Now you need to know that it talks about not only sinners but the tax collectors. That's a special brand of sinners. These are like the lowest of the low. You know why? Because they were Jews who had forsaken their own nation by making a deal with the Roman government to tax their own people and add a little on top for themselves. These are crooked people. They were despised. And Jesus is having a meal with them. They're, they're not okay with this. And so uh, what were they're criticizing here is basically saying Jesus is soft on sin. So Jesus responds to them with these three parables, two of which we'll look at today, the lost sheep and the lost coin. So look with me at verse 3. Let's look at the parable of the lost sheep. So he told them this parable. What man among you has, who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together saying to them, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Now, you need to know that the lost sheep here represents man's weakness apart from God. Like, without God, we're hopeless. If you had read this or heard this in Jesus' time, you would recognize this is not a compliment. Sheep are not cute creatures, okay? They're, 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 we're talking about something that, that is uh, kind of despised. Uh, people at that time would have recognized sheep and shepherds, and it wasn't a romantic picture. Been to the Holy Land many times, and every time I see sheep and I see shepherds, and they're not beautiful, cute animals. They're nasty, okay? Sheep are weak, they're dirty, and they're dumb animals. They are totally dependent on their masters, and they're constantly having to be rescued. It's not like they're a little bit far down on the food chain. You need to understand that sheep have no defense system at all. Like there's no ability to protect themselves from predators whatsoever. That's what we're talking about here. And so he gives this picture of a shepherd. And in fact, he's given a natural one because he says, which one of you would not do this? So it's not like this is an extraordinary shepherd, what he's doing, which helps us understand something as they would have heard it and what they would have applied at the, implied at the time. And here's what I mean. Have you ever read this parable and thought, well, he left the 99 in the open field and he went after the one. He probably lost two or three more sheep. Like, why did he do that? No, because if you went there, you'd understand that shepherds are watching over their flocks, which by the way, it's a little bit of hyperbole here for the point. A hundred would be a massive flock. Like 10 to 20 is what you usually see a shepherd with. And so he has a hundred. And so what happens is they come to this open field toward the end of the day and they combine them in one place. It's kind of a gathering place. They have some pins there. So one shepherd can watch a lot of sheep and protect them overnight so others can go home, get some rest, have a family life, that sort of thing. So that's probably what's in view here. And so it's been a hard day. You've been watching them as they've been grazing. They've been out in the hills, like finding food. And now they're coming back toward the end of this day. And they're coming into the sheep pen in this field. And, and so uh, shepherd's counting them. One, okay, two, three, 54, 55, okay, 96, 97, 98, 99. Uh-oh. So maybe he goes back and he starts counting again, like, this is not good. This is not good. And what he does 
is apparently what they would all do. He says, guys, we have a problem. I'm missing a sheep and I've got to go find that sheep. It may just be a carcass that I find because he's been out there a while, but I can't just stay here. And so even at risk to himself going out probably at night, he leaves those sheep there and he goes out and he searches diligently and he finds this poor pitiful sheep and it's in bad enough shape or exhausted or whatever that he puts the sheep on his shoulders and he carries it back to the field with everybody else. By now, word has gotten out among the villagers that they've lost the sheep. They're waiting. I mean, if this was modern times, you would put it on social media. Hey, I lost one of my sheep. If you see a fluffy animal, you know, would you please let me know because I'm looking for it. Okay. So he's gotten word out. And so he finds it. He's, he's coming around the bend. He sees them. And he's like, hey, good news. I found him. Man, I found him. And they're going, woohoo, yeah. So they call everybody. They're celebrating that they found this lost sheep. And what does Jesus say? He's saying, I tell you, that's the rejoicing that we're talking about when one lost is found. There's more rejoicing with that than 99 who, who uh, don't need to be found. Do you see? This is the picture that we have. Now for the lost coin. Incidentally, there would have only been male shepherds at this time. And so some believe, maybe he gives the illustration of the, the shepherd for the men who are listening, and he gives the illustration of the lady for the ladies here. And so look at verse 8 with me. Or what woman who has ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Now, when we read that, we can tell a couple of things that are probably true. First of all, this woman is probably poor because she has to light a lamp to look for the, the lost coin, and that means she has no windows in her home. We see that she is, she's sweeping the floors and, and she's trying to find a coin. So there's dirt floors here uh, probably. So she's trying to search diligently for this lost coin. You know what else many scholars believe? She's probably single. And here's why. At that time, we learned that uh, many uh, single women would wear uh, sort of a crown or a headpiece with 10 silver coins adorning them. And this was exemplary of a dowry, saying, I have the price to pay for uh, a groom. But it also is demonstrating her depth of character and her desire at that time to be married and looking for the future, all these things. So there's a lot going into this. It's a very precious thing, so much so that there was a Roman law that you could not tax a single woman uh, uh, as a part of her, that had coins as a part of her dowry. So if she lost that, it makes more sense. Maybe she just had 10 coins and lost a silver one and that's all. But chances are really good that this is something precious to her because of how she starts to seek and to search. Do you see? There is a radical, diligent search here. Have you ever lost something that was precious to you? You ever lost something that was I mean, way lost? When I was thinking this week about uh, something that probably was most lost that I was trying to find uh, a few years ago in 2015, Omar, Pastor Omar and I were in Cairo, Egypt, dedicating a medical center that by the grace of God, we got to help develop and build. And then we had an afternoon off uh, 
or the day before we got on the plane. And so, um, so he took me to the pyramids outside of Cairo, you know, to see those. And so we, uh, there were several there, give you gu- uh, guided tours. And so we hopped on a horse-drawn carriage and like rode around the, the couple miles around the pyramids in the desert sands to look at these pyramids, take some pictures and stuff. We get back and we stop for a meal and I, I go, oh my gosh, guess what, Omar, I lost my phone. He's like, you lost your phone where? Like somewhere out around the pyramids. So, you know, we went back and found the guide. We're like, hey, is there any chances in your wagon? And he's like, no, but he actually made the trip again. I'm just being nice. You know, he's like, dude, you're not gonna find a phone in the desert sand, like three square miles of sand. Probably not gonna see it again. If you're ever at the pyramids and you kick something, you, you, it's like an eight-year-old iPhone. Would you grab it for me and bring it back? Some good pictures on there, but it's probably gone. Like I never saw it again. And, and so that's okay. I mean, I ended up getting another phone, but you know what I've found? The measure you're willing to go to look for something is directly related to how precious it is for you, right? So I want you to understand how diligent this is taking place, and it helps us understand something about this particular parable. I've known people who lost wedding rings, and I've never known somebody who lost a wedding ring or the stone in a wedding ring that didn't search like as long as it took. We're still searching maybe years later because it was so precious to them. It wasn't only monetarily valuable, it had very special sentiment of value, right? And so that's what we see here. That's what's in view is they're longing for this and she finds the coin. And when she finds the coin, what does she do? She gathers all her friends together and she says, I found it. And they are rejoicing. They have a party. You see, are you getting the picture? Jesus is being accused of being soft on sin. He's sharing the love of God with those who are considered outsiders, overlooked, too far gone. And he's responding to this accusation that he, he, he hangs out with sinners and he eats with them and he's blowing their minds because when he eats with them, do you understand what he's communicating in that time? It's not just that he's sharing a meal. He's saying, I want to be in community with you. It's a big deal to have to share a meal with somebody. And so this is the age-old dilemma of the church, isn't it? How do, we, how do we interact with somebody that you consider outside the faith or far from God or, or maybe even anti-God who's very different from you from a worldview standpoint, from a, mild, uh, from, from a, a, a standpoint of how they live? Like, what are you supposed to do in this case? How can you love those in the world without loving the world or loving, uh, loving all the things about the world. And so here's what we see here. Jesus gives these parables to us as a gift so that we can know how to do that. And if we look closely at them, you know what we find? We find two profound realities about people that will change the way we interact with those we'd consider outsiders. Now, the reality is I know some of you may be watching or you're here today and you say, man, I'm probably more in that camp than this camp. You know, I'm the one who might be considered an outsider. Well, Jesus has something to say to you today as well. But for all those in the room who who have trusted Christ, you're walking with Jesus. This is such an important lesson. The reality of how Jesus describes our relationship to outsiders in defending himself to these Pharisees. And I'm going to go ahead and cheat Um, right now and just tell you what those realities are and then we'll unpack them, okay? First reality is this. We remember how lost we are. If If you're in Christ, how lost you were in Christ is what I mean. But when, when, we, when we recognize the reality of how lost we are, it changes our, our mindset, our perception of how we see those outside the faith. And second, we must remember how loved we are. 
When we recognize how lost we are and how loved we are, it changes how we interact with those people who would be considered far from God. So let's start with this, the first reality about people, how lost we are. It's important to note that when Jesus responded, he didn't tell parables that made it sound like the people around the table that he was dining with were great people. He wasn't saying, oh, no, do you understand? It's no big deal that these are tax collectors and sinners. It's no, that's not what he does at all. He describes lostness. Man, did you catch that? He's talking about sheep that are totally defenseless and helpless and going to die on their own. He talks about a coin that's in the darkness and it's dirty and needs to be recovered. He's talking about utter, total lostness. He's being honest about where they are. Did you know that when we get put out with lost people for acting like lost people, we're actually revealing that we completely misunderstand what it means to be lost. Because we're, we're assuming that somebody can just figure it all out and, and, and clean themselves up morally and, and be in the place that we are. And it also reveals that we have forgotten how lost we were because maybe we've been saved and now the Holy Spirit's empowering us to live and to grow in Christ. And sometimes we get the wrong idea that, man, we've done, we've done something. Look how much better I am than that dude over there. Well, shame on you. Well, if the per person's lost, you understand? We understand the gravity, the lostness, then there's no way that person can solve his or her sin problem on his own. We're revealing a misunderstanding about lostness. What was Jesus' mission statement? He actually reveals it in the book of Luke. Just a few chapters later, Luke 19, he has this interaction with a tax collector named Zacchaeus. He comes to his house and he eats with Zacchaeus. Do you notice a pattern? And Zacchaeus comes to faith. And when he comes in faith, his life is totally transformed. And Jesus says this in Luke 19, 10, reveals his purpose. He says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. That's why he came. That's why we're here. At the end of the sheep parable, uh, Jesus makes it clear that there are none who are righteous. It, it actually, I think, is probably a little bit tongue-in-cheek what he says here. But in verse 7, did you notice? He says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Are there any righteous people? I mean, are there anybody who just, they don't need to repent at all? No. He's saying, hey, Pharisees, dude, you're lost too. Do you see? Your morality is not cutting it. And, and so it only comes through a Savior. Do you see? Friends, salvation comes only through Jesus. I know maybe some of you come here because your spouse asks you to come or you come because your parents ask you to come and you say, Pastor, you say that all the time. Salvation comes only through Jesus. And I'm going to say it again. But maybe you'd have a conversation with me and say, don't you know this is the 21st century and there's new ideas and we're more global and there's other ways and paths to heaven. And I would tell you, no, there's not. Like if you study history, if you study other world religions, there's no other way to heaven, to God, other than recognizing our lostness and our need for a Savior and Christ unique qualification as the son of God to be that savior. There's no new ideas. How many of you know that just because something is newer doesn't mean it's better? That's a really important lesson to understand. I'll give you a silly example that's just been on my mind lately, okay? So hang with me. This is not from God. This is just my own personal preference. And I'm going to sound like an old man, all right? When I was in high school, we had homecoming and, and we'd ask the, the girls to do the homecoming dance and we would give her what? A mom, and, and they're beautiful, and I'm glad we have mums now. I'm not even going to go off on how big the mums are. That's cool, ladies. You can make them as big as you want, the mums. The difference is, 
How do I put this? Listen, when I look back at my high school pictures, there's a lot of things that I regret about how I dressed, things that I did. There's a lot of things, all of us probably, right? Guys who are in high school right now, can I talk to you just man to man? When you look back, you're going to regret wearing flowers, all right? It's the dude moms, right? And I understand you can wear a corsage and you can look nice and dapper. And again, this is just my opinion. But when I see guys with big old flowers going to dance, I'm like, there's going to be a day when you wish you had not worn flowers, guys. Just put that in your notes. It's not exactly related to what we're talking about here. I just want you to know just because it's a new idea doesn't mean it's a good idea. And likewise... And you say the emails, I know some of you are going to say, oh, they're beautiful, and that was, uh, that was rude. Okay, <laughs> call me an old man. <laughs> Most importantly, I want you to understand, when it comes to salvation, and you think you have a new idea of a path to salvation, that's really dangerous. Salvation is found in no one else but Jesus, do you see? And, and the problem is, when we don't realize how lost we are, we don't think we need Jesus. Or... All of us can fall in the trap who've come to faith in Christ of thinking that we're pretty good and we've figured it out and we just kind of have Jesus as a convenience. No, no, we need to understand how lost we were and when we interact with somebody outside of the faith, how lost they are. That's not an insult. That's the truth, right? But I want you to see something else. We will be more compassionate toward those we'd consider outsiders when we recognize how lost we are and we recognize how loved we are. You see? In both these parables, the two main characters, both the shepherd and the woman, when they found what they were looking for, they didn't just say, well, that's a relief. They rejoiced. They threw a party. They were so excited. How are we supposed to respond to those who are lost, who've been found, we love them. Do you see? How do we respond to those who are far from God? We love them. John 3, 16 is probably the most famous Bible verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his own son, right? But the next verse is also very telling of how he loved. John 3, 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus didn't come to earth with the purpose of condemnation. He came to earth with the purpose of restoration. And we get to be agents of restoration, sharing the hope of Jesus Christ with those around us. You see, both in verse 7 and verse 10, there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. There's rejoicing. There ought to be here as well. We've gotten to celebrate 10 baptisms today. Church, I hope we never get tired of that and say, well, I guess some more going through this, this symbol. This is a visible picture, this gift God has given us of what the Lord has done in the hearts of those who come. We should rejoice when we see baptism. Do you see? Because of what the Lord Jesus has done. There's nothing better than that. So in these parables, Jesus is answering a question. How should we interact with sinners? How do we deal with people who would be deemed outsiders? We remember how lost people are, and remember how loved people are. Do you see? The late missionary C.T. Studd once said, some want to live within the sound of the church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. I don't know about you, but I, I pray that God would give me that heart. Like, I, I just want to be where people are who, who don't know so that I can turn the light on and share how much God loves them. So how are we supposed to do that? I want us to get real practical for a, two, three minutes and, and, and have some takeaways. Like, how do we do that well? How do we protect our own hearts, but also love those around us that maybe, just maybe make us a little uncomfortable? Well, 
First of all, we look at the example from Jesus. We've seen throughout our study the book of Luke, and you can look throughout the Gospels, and you see Jesus was constantly pressing pause in his ministry to get away and spend time with his heavenly father. He would get up early in the morning. He'd stay out all night by himself. He'd, he'd break away from all he was doing because his most critical relationship was with his heavenly father. Do you see? And when we invest time with our heavenly father, when we as Christians invest time with other fellow believers, pouring in the word of God, praying for one another, not only does that soften our hearts toward the things that soften God's heart, but it also hardens our resolve to, to make sure that we're not, we're not being unguarded in the sin that's around us. Do you see? That's Christ's example, um, his most significant relationship with the Father. But I want you to notice that his relationships had the aim of sharing truth to draw men to God. He wasn't just having dinner with sinners to have dinner with sinners. He was bringing up the tough stuff because he wanted them to understand how desperately they needed a Savior. Listen, there's a big difference between loving someone and lying to someone. Jesus didn't just hang out and act like everything was okay. That's why he was so offended, offensive sometimes, right? He'd talk about the reality of what was going on. He's calling them to a place of repentance where he exposes the need, and then he shares the love of Christ. So there's, there's a big difference there that God's calling us to. In a similar vein, moms and dads, how are you supposed to uh, help your kids with this dilemma? Because you want your children to be salt and light to those around them, right? But you also want to protect them from the ways of the world or from temptation to compromise. So how do you do that? Can I offer you a couple of suggestions? First of all, make your house a safe haven. Make your house the place that they can come and be safe and share the light of Christ, even with those who are far from the faith. I had the pleasure of growing up in a home where we were that house that like all the kids wanted to come to. In fact, it wasn't unusual for me to be gone and my teammates or my classmates to hang out at my house because my parents would like stock the pantry with as much food as anybody wanted. And yeah, it was the cheap stuff because a bunch of teenage boys come in and they'd ravage like all the little Debbie snack cakes and the moon pies. Don't lecture me about health food until you tried to feed a teenage boy or all his friends, okay? So we'd have this and they'd all just come to our house. And through the years, we saw lots of people come to faith in Christ because they came in, they looked around and they saw it. But you see, you create a safe place for your kids when they can welcome others into that home and you can be the good influence rather than others being the bad influence. The second thing I'd encourage you to do, moms and dads, model missional living. Your kids are watching you. When was the last time they heard you have a conversation about somebody at work that you've gotten to share the love of Christ with or somebody at the ball field that you were talking to? Uh, when was the last time that you prayed together with them for somebody uh, who is far from God? You just wanted them to know how much God loved them. They're watching you. We know that faith is more caught than it is taught. And so it's so important that we understand that. But there's one more practical application and we'll close. I know there's some here who have not experienced the forgiveness that God offers. And that's the most important thing I want you to grasp today. The audience of Jesus' parable wasn't just the Pharisees. It was those tax collectors and sinners. They're listening in. And he wanted them to know how lost they were. And he wanted them to know how loved they were. I hope that you know that. I hope you know how much God loves you. As far as I can tell, there's only four kinds of people who walk into any church service. There's only four categories of people described anywhere in the Bible. First of all, there's those who are lost who think they're found. That's a dangerous place to be, right? I mean, you know, I, I think I'm found. I've lived a pretty good life. I'm sincere. But you don't realize that 
You're lost because salvation only, only comes from Jesus. There's those who are lost and know they're lost. Well, I want you to know, maybe you think, well, I'm too far from God or it's too late for me. No, salvation is found in Jesus and that's available to everyone within the sound of my voice. There's some in the room and you are found, but you think you're lost. That's a sad place to live as well. So you have trusted Christ. You've been forgiven for sure forever. And yet there's some regrets in your life, some hangups you're trying to get over. And you think, well, God couldn't love me. No, no, God in his power has saved you for sure, completely forever. And there's others, praise God, who are found and you know that you're found. And do you know what? If that's you, I praise God for that. Then, then you know what? God's now given you a commission, a mandate. That's why we're still here and breathing to share the love of Christ with others. Would you bow with me, church? Let's respond as God leads us today. I wonder whether somebody came today and you know in your heart of hearts you never trusted Christ as Savior and Lord. Why not today? I hope that you respond as God leads. And maybe you're like me and you're saved, but the Spirit of God has just tapped you on the shoulder today and said, you know what? I'm putting people in your path that are outside your comfort zone and I'm asking you to move in their direction and share the love of Christ. Are you willing to do so even if it's uncomfortable? So Heavenly Father, would you bring us to a place of decision today? Would you draw us to a place of obedience? I pray especially for the man or woman who's realized today their desperate need for a savior. Thank you that you provided everything they need to be saved through Jesus Christ. I ask this in Jesus' name.